And please take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, we're going to read the entire chapter this morning. So we have a bit of a longer reading. This is Moses' uh, final word before giving the, the rules and the statutes and the commandments that the Lord gave to Israel. And so as Moses transitions, uh, he first sets before the people this crucial choice. And it is, is a matter of nothing less than life or death, um, blessing or cursing. So with that in mind, let's hear uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. And that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, 
and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God and turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moreh? For you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Well, this was surely a pivotal moment for the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, recall the big picture in the setting here. Israel is on the plains of Moab, just east of the Jordan River, about to cross over into the promised land. That is, that is the setting here. As Moses, a dying man, speaks to his people, one last sermon series, as it were. And, and, and they are in this in-between, between being redeemed out of Egypt before entering into the, the fullness of what God had promised them in the land of Canaan. In many ways, that is similar to the position that we find ourselves in as Christians today. We are pilgrims on the way, and there are important choices to be made and spiritual battles to be fought before we enter fully into what God has promised us in Christ. And so the people of God are poised in the in-between, redeemed out of Egypt, peering into the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And in that context, Moses sets before the people this crucial choice. This choice between life or death, 
blessing or curse, what we could call the choice between the ruin of rebellion or the blessed life of obedience, which is ours by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only true Israelite who has perfectly kept the whole commandment of the Lord with all of his heart. And what we need to appreciate today is that our salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not only salvation from from slavery, not only salvation from slavery to sin and death, but it is salvation to the blessed life. Salvation to the blessed life of obedience and submission to the Lord, which again is ours by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there really are no other ways than these two. The Bible is setting for us, before us here, two ultimate destinies. There is the way of curse and there is the way of blessing. And the way of curse is marked by unbelief and disobedience. And the way of blessing is marked by trust and obedience. And, and Jesus himself is the way. He is that way, the one that we are called to trust and follow. That is the way of blessing. But perhaps in the clearest terms up to this point in the Bible, we are told that there are these two ultimate destinies, even depicted as we read in Israel by these two mountains. There's this mount of blessing and there is this mount of cursing. So let's survey this chapter, and this really is just a survey because there's so much to cover here, but I want to try to summarize the message of Deuteronomy 11 in terms of, first, the ruin of rebellion, and secondly, the blessed life of obedience, beginning with the ruin of rebellion. Now, most of Deuteronomy chapter 11 is focused on giving God's people one reason after another positive reasons, to keep the commandments of the Lord. Powerful motivation to trust and obey. I couldn't help think of that old hymn this week as I was getting ready to preach. You know, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. In some ways, that sums up the message of Deuteronomy chapter 11. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to enter into the land of, uh, that's flowing with milk and honey. But to be clear, it's not that our obedience earns our access into the land. The message rather is there's no other way to enjoy it. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. God wants his people to see and understand that the blessed life really is a life of obedience to God's commandments. It is a life of of submission, which comes by grace through faith. So you see, this this really is a radical message in our day. I know it's radical in any age, but I think particularly in our present context, that the blessed life, the happy life, is a life 
of submission to the will of another. It is conforming our lives to the will of the Lord, whose will is so much better, so much wiser, so much more broad, so much more sweet and good than our own. And I want you to listen carefully to me on on this point. Precisely because God's goal is to give his people heaven, he wants to scare the hell out of us. I'm not being flippant. Precisely because God's goal is to give his people heaven in verses 1 through 7, God intends to scare the hell out of his people. As I said, in the rest of the chapter, it's full of positive reasons for obedience. But verses 1 through 7 contain some of the most terrifying negative examples that you can imagine. And this was, of course, a display of God's love for his people. It communicates that we cannot, we cannot take God lightly. We cannot think that we can live like Pharaoh and be stiff-necked and proud and not come to ruin. We, we cannot think that just because I identify superficially with the people of God, but I live with a stubborn heart, that everything is going to be okay in the end. So he gives these shocks, and that's what they are, these shocks to our system about the ruin of rebellion. He wants his people to understand that rebellion brings destruction. Rebellion brings ruin. God wants us to see that. That is the clear message of the beginning of this chapter. The Israelites had seen it with their own eyes. They had seen ruin, horrible, terrible, terrifying things. And God reminds them of that here. And so Moses reminds them in verse 3, consider the mighty signs and wonders God did in Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his land. I mean, we could walk through plague after plague to see God's power uh, to overcome his enemies in that story. Consider the disaster that was brought upon Egypt when Pharaoh would not let God's people go. It is a terrifying thing. to fall into the hands of the Lord. Consider what the Lord did to the army of Egypt. I wonder if you've ever thought in your mind what it would have been like to have been there. To have been among the Israelites who passed between the waters on dry ground and to come forth on the other side and turn around and see an entire army in hot pursuit, and then all of a sudden like that, they're destroyed. As the water collapsed in upon them. Imagine the, the bodies washing up on shore. What a scene. These were powerful images of God's judgment that would have surely stuck in the minds of the children of Israel. Mighty signs and wonders. On the one hand, Mighty acts of deliverance, for sure. But on the other hand, terrifying acts of judgment as well. And Moses is speaking to 
the generation who were just kids when these events uh, took place, the events of the Exodus. But now they're grown up, and many of them, no doubt, with kids of their own. And the older generation, you remember, there's reference to this as well. The older generation had fallen dead on the desert floor because of the rebellion that took place at Kadesh Barnea. You remember, Israel has been in this position before on the cusp of the promised land. They went in and they saw the land. There was even a good report of how abundant the land was. But then 10 of the spies said, we can't do this. Even though the Lord was saying, I'm giving this land to you. I've promised it to your fathers. I will go before you. I will fight for you. Now go up and take the languages. Go and take the land I am giving to you. But Israel refused because they did not trust the Lord. And so what should have been an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land turned into a 38-year death march in the wilderness. And an entire generation fell on the desert floor. Mighty signs and wonders. And what, what we also need to see here is... Um, The point of recounting these acts, why is God doing this? Why is God recalling his acts of judgment upon his enemies and even his discipline of his own people? It is to, to see clearly the ruin and disaster of rebellion so that God's people would choose life. That they would take hold of that which is truly life. Moses says in verse 2 and verse 7, Consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who haven't known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God. Verse 7, For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Now here is something that is really surprising and perhaps shocking for us to think about. That the great works of the Lord referenced here, yes, they include the destruction of the enemies like the Egyptians, but it also includes includes God's acts of discipline within the camp. Within the covenant community of God's people. So when you think about the mighty acts of the Lord, his greatness, it not only includes how he defeats his enemies, but also the way that he disciplines his own people. This is very sobering. As Moses goes on to say in verse 6, consider what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with their households. Who are these guys? You might need some refreshing. What's this story about? You can Find it at greater length in Numbers uh, chapter 16. But here's a a quick summary. These were were powerful men in Israel. Leaders in their own right. Serious dudes, you might say. um, Who rebelled against the God-ordained leadership and authority of Moses and Aaron. And as a result of their rebellion, they died. The, the earth swallowed them whole. This story is commonly referred to as Korah's rebellion because, of course, Korah was 
the ringleader of 250 other chieftains, right, leading these people in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And I think it is an example of nothing less than exquisite irony that Moses doesn't even mention Korah's name here. Even though he was, in fact, the ringleader, he is remembered as the man who was forgotten. But at any rate, this is, this is what this group of rebels said to Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16, verse 3. And this is what we are commanded to remember. It's what the men did. And it has a whole lot to teach us about the subtle nature of our rebellious hearts. They said, okay, imagine, you know, 250 chieftains here with Korah at the front coming to Moses and saying, in essence, nah, Moses, uh, you know, you've gone, you've gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and <clears throat> the Lord is among us. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I wonder if you see the trap that's being set and what's really going on here. Uh, Korah and the rest who were with him were not satisfied with their position. Korah wanted greater power and prominence than God in his providence had assigned to him, even though he was a man of no small social standing within the community. He was envious of Moses and Aaron, and so here's what he did. He cloaked his ambition to exalt himself with the seemingly noble appeal to the principle that all of God's people should be treated equally. It's a, it's a really clever move on his part. He's saying, come on, Moses, what makes you so special? Right? We're all God's people. You need to learn to respect the will of the majority. Why on earth should you tell us what to do? Why do you get to make the decisions? Decisions should be settled in a more democratic fashion. That's, that's really what Korah's suggesting. And when Moses heard this, I mean, he knew he was in a pickle. Korah had set a clever trap. If Moses tried to argue against that, if he tried to argue with it, it would have looked like Korah was exactly right, that he was, Moses was just interested in exalting uh, himself and you know, maintaining his status and his authority among the people, which, by the way, Deuteronomy 17, where you find the laws uh, for Israel's king, specifically commands that the king must not exalt himself above his brothers. So this is a tough spot that Moses and Aaron found themselves in. If they argued, made a case for their leadership, it could very well look like Korah was onto something. And so instead of arguing, you remember what Moses did? He, he just handed the matter over to the Lord. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 4, he says, When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all of his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. All right, so Moses entrusted himself to God's protection and Judgment, and the next day the earth swallowed up Korah and all of the men that he led in rebellion. And this is recorded as one of the mighty acts of God 
that the children of Israel saw with their own eyes and they were to take to heart. And once again, by telling the people to consider this event, Moses was calling all Israel to reject the ruin of rebellion and to embrace the blessed life of obedience. Now, of course, as we think about these events, we, we could be tempted to say, okay, well, yeah, but you know, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything like that before. I haven't seen the earth eat someone for breakfast. <laughs> I haven't seen an entire army wiped out in the blink of an eye as an act of divine judgment. But friends, the truth of the matter is, if you are a Christian, you have seen something greater than anyone of the Exodus generation has ever seen. Think about it in terms of when you survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Consider that. Think about the power of the Lord on display to save and to judge. Think about, think about what he did with your sin when he laid it upon his son. Think about the discipline of the Lord your God. Consider his discipline. Stop and think about what you have seen. As Paul, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now that is a fascinating statement by the Apostle Paul because the Galatian Christians were not present when Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. What Paul is saying is that in the hearing of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was publicly set before them as crucified. And that is far greater, if you think about it, that is far greater than the earth devouring someone. When the message of the gospel is someone went down into the earth and came back out again. We've seen it through the preaching of the gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus before our very eyes. And the Spirit opens our eyes to see the God who is this serious about dealing with the sin and rebellion of his own people. He's so serious that he sent his one and only son to die in the place of rebels like you and me. That's how seriously God takes our sin. And that's what we have seen by faith as Christians. The only one, get this, the only one who ever truly lived the blessed life of obedience by keeping the whole commandment of the Lord with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there has only ever been one. He willingly took the curse of the covenant, right? He was, he was willingly cursed so that we may receive the covenant blessing, so that we may enter in and, as it were, take possession, for we are more than conquerors through him who loved us 
and gave himself for us. That brings us to the second thing I want us to consider in this passage, the blessed life of obedience. Because after providing all of these negative examples of the ruin of rebellion in verses 1 through 7, Moses goes on to pile up one positive encouragement after another to commit to the life of trust and obedience, a path of obedience. And we certainly can't look at all of these. So let me just zero in on one for a second. In verse 8, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. Just notice there the emphasis on that phrase, that you may be strong. It's really an emphasis on the idea of wholeness, of completion. It's, it's a major theme running throughout Deuteronomy that's grounded in the character of God himself because God is one, our obedience is to be singular. But this idea of wholeness, a simplicity, a unified life. Moses is calling God's people to comprehensive obedience in verse 8. And he's motivating it with this phrase, that you may be strong. Think about that connection. Because when we are divided, right, we're weak. You, you can't serve two masters, as Jesus says. Selective obedience, where we pick and choose, leaves us vulnerable and weak. It exposes us to all kinds of spiritual attacks. And sometimes we do selective obedience simply because we're blind. We just don't, we don't see what we should. But sometimes we do selective obedience because we're stubborn. Because we're stiff-necked. So I encourage you to, to stop and, and think about this for a minute. Where does selective obedience manifest in my life? Right? Where, where do I get a little wishy-washy? When it comes to keeping the commandments of the Lord. I know the Lord says don't do this. But. I know the Lord calls me to do this. But I can't possibly do that. When we're divided like that. This passage is saying we're weak. God wants his people though. To be wholeheartedly devoted. That we may be strong. In the strength of the Lord. Comprehensive obedience. If you think about this. It was a. Uh, a major theme in Jesus' teaching. <clears throat> I've got a bunch of examples in my notes, but let me just mention uh, you know, the Great Commission. Jesus charges his disciples, go into all the world and <clears throat> make disciples of the nations. Jesus didn't say baptizing and teaching them to obey some of my commandments, right? Jesus said, go and baptize and teach them all that I have commanded you. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, when he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, he spent time in Ephesus, he, he says, I, I, I declared to you the whole counsel of God. We need the whole thing. We need the whole kit and caboodle because it is, it is not enough if, if you are truthful and you have not love. It's not enough to hold the right opinion about something and to not hold it in the right way. And it's not enough to love the Lord with your mind and have 
all of your theology worked out and not do what the Lord says. It's not enough to be obedient in this, that area of your life and and think that it excuses that one small part of your life where you continue to say, no, Lord, this is off limits. You can't touch it. God's commands, again, are a unified whole because God is one. See, this is grounded in the simplicity of God. And so, because God is one, we are called to a singular, focused, comprehensive obedience. Loving God from the inside out with the totality of our being. It's it's a description of fullness that leads to flourishing. That it may go well with you in the land. And this ought to bring us... Frankly, this ought to bring us, this call to comprehensive obedience, it ought to bring us to our knees. Um, It ought to bring us to our knees because it exposes the fact that we all, every one of us, have fallen so far short of the glory of God. it It really strikes me that in what might be the most famous verse in the Bible regarding the doctrine of sin and in Romans 3 when Paul says all have sinned and fallen short. He doesn't, he doesn't say we've all fallen short of the kindness of God or the goodness of God or the holiness of God. You know, all those things true. He says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. It, it reminds us that as Human beings made in the image of God. You were made to be glorious. You were made to shine like the sun. We feel it in our bones, but oh, how far we've fallen. And one of the first things we must do in light of the the standard that the Lord gives to his people is remember what we were made for. We We were made to blaze like the sun, to be images of the perfect God, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's what we're for. And so in being confronted with this standard and our position, we have to recognize that it first of all ought to drive us humbly to our knees. But as the law and the statutes were given to Israel As a handmaid to Christ, we also have to recognize that these laws are meant to drive us to Jesus and show us that the blessed life of obedience can only be enjoyed by grace through faith in Christ who lived the blessed life of obedience but also died to give it to you. He died and rose again to give this life to you. As Jesus himself declares in John 6, 29, you want to know what the commandment of God is? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Because in him is truth and grace, grace upon grace, as John says, and we've seen his glory full of grace and truth. He's the only one who could ever satisfy God. And, And all of the pictures here, very quickly running to the end of this chapter, All of the descriptions of this beautiful land are pictures for us in this moment of redemptive history, which which ought to drive us to put our faith and trust in Jesus, to hide ourselves in him so that we may 
enter into the fullness that God has promised us, us, which is nothing short of the restoration of new heavens and new earth, knowing that in trusting and obeying him, we are more than conquerors. We, we share in his victory, and this is meant to be a, a, an Old Testament description of the inheritance of the saints. <laughs> You are heirs of God and heirs of the world, as Paul says. That's what is being hinted at by these descriptions of the promised land here. So although we can't can't look at every detail of uh, this passage today, we're going to come to some of it when we come to the Lord's table in a moment, I do want us to finish by recognizing that there is a vision set before us here that we absolutely must not miss with the Israelites peering into the promised land, which is spread out before them as a good and spacious land, oozing out of the land, milk and honey. And this is a land that, notice the emphasis and the contrast here, it is not a land that is supplied by human will and exertion. Did you notice the contrast with the land of Egypt? The land of Egypt where the people had to work and work and work to irrigate the land, to bring forth any kind of produce. And in contrast to that, the land of Canaan is described as the land that God himself cares for. It drinks the rain from heaven. Right? You see the point here. The promised land is different. This is the land that the Lord himself provides for. It's a land filled with the Lord's provision. It's the place where you're not going to pump it up. God instead is going to rain it down. And in that way, isn't it a wonderful description of what we find in Jesus Christ, who is our way and who is our life? This is a picture of God's provision, abundant provision, overflowing provision in the gospel of his son. And so we're confronted by this crucial choice between these two ultimate destinies. Will you take hold of the blessed life of trust and submission by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Or will you be ruined in the way of rebellion? That's what's set before us here in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And so I think it's good for us to Consider that and to pray that all of us, by God's grace, would take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray together. God and Father, we we do pray now that in light of this crucial choice, this choice that you set before us, that by your grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would take hold of that which is truly life and confess with joy and gladness that Jesus is our life. And we pray that you would remind us of that and prove that to us as we come to fellowship with him uh, at his table today. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.